0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Rabbi Benzion Klatsko of currently Muncie, New York. How are you, Rabbi Klatsko? Thank God, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, thank you very much. I understand you have a bat mitzvah this evening for one of your daughters, is that right? This is correct, my zahavala. We surprised
1: her with it because it's a little bit early. But a lot of the family is going back to Israel because it's after the holidays. So we want everyone to be together for the celebration.
0: Beautiful. I was wondering how you surprise someone for their bat mitzvah. Like, they don't realize they're turning 12. But <laughs> yeah.
1: So it would technically be in a few weeks. But we called her and we said, guess where you're going tonight? To
0: your bat mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> it's our little secret, Rabbi Klatsko. <laughs> uh, so anyway, really thrilled to have you. For those listening, Rabbi Klatzko, unlike some of my other guests, is actually someone I've known for quite a few years, and in fact was an early role model in my own work as a campus rabbi, and I've had him speak to many, many groups of students of mine over the years, and his story and stories is and are worth sharing wide and far. And just to start, rabbi, I'd like to ask you to go back in time a little bit and tell us where you grew up and how you came to get involved in any sort of a rabbinic capacity. Okay, great. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. My father was born in Cleveland and went to
1: school in Cleveland and then New York, married a girl from Brooklyn, became a rabbi at a pretty early age. Uh, My first synagogue I had when I was 21 years old. That was in Brooklyn, New York. And I was the rabbi there for about seven years. Well,
0: wow, they couldn't find any other
1: rabbis in Brooklyn? What was, the... <laughs> what was the story? Well, they did have a rabbi. And I used to pepper him with questions. At the end of each service, he would get up and deliver a, a sermon. And I'd go over and I'd say, well, that actually is what it says in this book or disagrees with this. And he always sort of enjoyed that. And then one day he comes to me and he says, I'm going to be away this Shabbat. Would you take over for me? I said, you sure? He said, yeah. So I took over. I was 21. And then he went away a few more weeks each time I took over and then he called me up and he said I've been going to interview at other synagogues I spoke to this synagogue they've liked how you filled in for me and they want to know if you'll take over permanently so it was very surprising but it worked and I was there for about seven years and after that I went to New Jersey to Jersey. I became a rabbi in a city called Perth Amboy. And that was for about three years. And then at the age of about 30, I left the pulpit and I became a campus rabbi. And what predicated that was my brother had passed away in his sleep and it affected me a lot. And one of the ways it affected me was leaving the rabbinics
0: and trying to do something a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I know that was a seminal event in your life, obviously a profound tragedy. Your brother was a very very well respected and well-regarded outreach rabbi in south Africa as i recall and from what i've heard passing made a really profound impact on you how exactly did it make an impact and why specifically did it lead you away from the pulpit rabbinate and into sort of a different kind of rabbinical role
1: it's a really interesting question i've thought about it a lot over the years like what exactly made this event such a pivotal point in my life there were a few things first off it was very unexpected he wasn't ill and And when he passed away at the age of 28, he had affected many, many people. And there's just something very proverbial about somebody's life being long or short and yet being able to show their accomplishments. You know, we're all going to die one day. And the question is, if something happened and when it does happen, what do we have to show for it? And that was the question that rattled around in my brain. I loved them very much. I was very shaken up. But more than that, what would I have to show? And being a pulpit rabbi, it certainly had its pluses. It was a learning experience. I was able to do a lot I became a mohel. so I do circumcisions and fix the mikveh, built an Arab, did all sorts of things that typical pulpit rabbis do. But at the end of the day, the clientele was the same, the congregation was not moving very much. And I just felt that I wasn't leaving a mark on the world. And I asked myself that very painful question of, if, if that had been me, what would I have to show? And the answer was not a whole bunch. So I decided to leave. And the truth of the matter is, I wasn't sure that, that was the shift I wanted to make from the pulpit to a college campus. I actually had planned on going back into study, Torah study full-time, and I interviewed in something called a kollel, which is a full-time study program. I said, you know, let me go back to the basics and let me just start learning full-time again. And when I interviewed, the head of that kollel said, listen, I'm reading your resume, you're overqualified for kollel. you've already been a rabbi for 10 years, it's very difficult to go back full-time study. But there is this position that you'll find fulfillment with, and that's in the UCLA. And it wasn't something I had thought of, but I thought, wow, that's interesting, out of the box. At that point in time, and there were no campuses that had on-campus rabbis outside of Chabad and Hillel, but like that other mom and pop presence did not exist. So there was no template for me to follow. But I liked the idea, flew down to LA. They liked me, we liked them. And I moved with my wife and at that time, six children to Fraternity Row and set up shop. That must have been quite a culture shock. For my wife, it certainly was. (laughs) He grew up in Brooklyn in a very ultra-Orthodox community called Borough Park. So from Borough Park to Fraternity Row, it's like from the shtetl to the cafes in Paris. It's like, it's just so different. But she knew how to play along. And we learned and we grew. And we weren't very good in the beginning. We made a lot of mistakes. But after a while, we understood the mentality and the needs of the college student. And it spoke to our hearts. And from that point on, we became the rabbis and even like the parents of the students at UCLA.
0: As you mentioned, you were sort of a trendsetter in many ways in this industry, not, of course, to take away anything from some of the other incredible organizations. Chabad has been doing amazing work on hundreds of campuses, as has Hillel in an even more global sense. But this is sort of a different approach, more of an educational, intensive approach, I guess we'd call it. And you, again, were, were sort of setting a trend in that particular regard. What were some of the early lessons you learned and what did you find was effective in that role? And what have you preserved from those early days?
1: It's also a very good question. Well, let me start with the mistakes. They are many. (laughs) I think one mistake that I made, which I learned early on, is that when you're a campus rabbi, while you have the opportunity to get out there and to really wag your finger with righteous indignation, and we must change the world because people are doing it wrong, and where's your Judaism, and how could you do this and that? But I realized very quickly that any kind of negativity is a turnoff. And I guess it's a simple concept, but coming from the world that I came from, which was a yeshiva world, which is a very Black and white world. There's kosher and not kosher, and if this is not kosher, it's not kosher. And to come onto a campus and see things that, according to my understanding of Torah knowledge, were perhaps less than kosher. I mean, this is fraternity row, <laughs> and to sort of be okay with that in order to allow the students to feel accepted and heard was something that I had to learn. But I feel like I, I did learn that, and I almost never—I can say almost—because sometimes I do slip. But I almost never go negative. I, I try to be positive, and even today, where I. I lecture around the world. I'm known as the positive rabbi, like just see the positive in everything, and that's not an accident. I could see the negative, and there are times that I think, "Hey, maybe it's time for me to become the fighter." instead of the lover. And then I just say, no, no, no. When you fight, you're a polarizing figure. And yeah, you'll have your people who follow you into battle. But at the end of the day, as they say, you catch more bees with honey. You want to attract people. You have to make them feel heard and understood and appreciated and loved. And that became not just my modus operandi, but that became my philosophy in life. That was a mistake, and I changed it as far as what do I take with me? Well, the trend-setting concept that I think we were able to present to the college world is that knowledge is the key to Judaism. When it comes to holding on to one's Jewish faith and belief, it's not just the traditions that will do it because plenty of people keep the traditions but they don't know why and eventually it doesn't overcome other obstacles or challenges because traditions are nice but what happens if your career is at stake or love is the issue you're going to get stuck so there's got to be something more than tradition and that is knowledge why we do what we do and knowledge is a long-term adventure you don't wake up in the morning and know algebra or trigonometry, or physics. You don't. It has to be studied. And Judaism, which, you know, they call Jewish people, people of the book. It's because we have lots and lots of books. That's what we have. And those books are full of ancient wisdom that applies to modern times. And that's my message to the students. So I don't make students do anything. You can't make anyone do anything anyway. But rather, we introduce the students, the concept that you can learn The knowledge is accessible. It's interesting and it's relevant. And what you do with it is going to be up to you, but I
0: think you're going to like it. It's interesting, you know, you can only preach what you live. And a little insight from your own story so far is that your impulse at age 30 was actually to return to an environment of full-time study. And so clearly that's something that draws you. And even though you ultimately ended up diverting and occupying a teaching role, you can see that you were someone who sort of craved knowledge for its own sake in your own life.
1: Very much so. That's still who I am. That's how I raise my children. And believe it or not, this is not just Jewish knowledge. My children know if they come to my bed, there's stacks of science books by my bed, and I actually lecture on science. I find science a gateway into understanding the Almighty. And I have this sort of little habit that when there's a big scientist that's out there that is accomplished, so I I try to call them or write them an email and meet them for coffee or lunch. And through that, I've met a lot of very prestigious people right now in the news. The concept of gravitational waves is very much in the news even today, gravitational waves to original light. There's a lot to be said about it, but it was a very interesting topic to me. It was Einstein's last theory that Einstein said can never be proven. So what I decided to do is I wanted to meet the person who was the head of LIGO, who would be up for the Nobel Prize. So I met this fellow. His name is Peter Solson. I wrote him a letter and I said, when are you going to be in New York? I'd like to take you out to lunch. And Peter Solson said, oh, I'm going to be in two months. He happens to be a professor lecturer in Syracuse. So two months from then, I took him out. We spent two hours together. I asked him a lot of questions. I have different science questions that sometimes trouble me. Uh, And of course, he was just a wellspring of knowledge. (laughs) And gravitational waves is the greatest discovery in our lifetime, not even a question. And just last Tuesday, the Nobel Prize was given to the heads of LIGO. So sort of an interesting little note, speaking of Judaism, Jews, you should know, Peter Solson is Jewish. And not only is he Jewish, but the first gravitational wave was discovered on Rosh Hashanah. that tiny wave through the XY laser, that was found. They waited 40 years and it was detected in Rosh Hashanah. And he was at temple when that happened. And he does not bring his phone to temple. So when he came back, he had thousands of congratulation emails because there he was in Rosh Hashanah. So I said to Peter, what did you do when you found out? You know what he said? One of the first things that he did, went and he bought a mezuzah and in. Peter Salson, the head of LIGO, buys Spillin and Mezuzza. And I spoke to him, why? Why was that your first impulse? We spoke about the cosmological constant and how the more you see, the more it's clear how the world is fine-tuned and it's not an accident. And he says, this is just another indication. And it moves me religiously. And the whole thing is fascinating. So a, a few weeks later, I was doing an Israel trip and my wife calls me up. She says, you'll never guess who knocked on the door in our house in Muncie. Mrs. Solson, they were passing through on the Garden State. He had my address and he came and she came in. And my wife said, what would it take to get you for Shabbat? She
0: said, just invite us. Tell them there's a gravitational pull from Syracuse to Muncie. You got to get them. That's right, that's right. We <laughs> go back and forth. Incredible. So Rabbi Klatsko, when you were out in LA, I know, again, from other contexts, that in addition to the pioneering work you did on campus, you also had some other interesting forays. Uh, that You were known in some circles as the Hollywood Rabbi. How did that come about, and what was that experience? It's funny because there are a number of rabbis out there that go around with that title, the Hollywood rabbis. So
1: I don't use it except for if I have younger teeny boppers so they like it. But, But it was a lot of fun. It originated, I used to pray in a certain synagogue that was near UCLA campus. And it was in Westwood. And there were a few people in the industry who were young and they used to pray there. And the rabbi was an older gentleman and they used to have questions. But rather than asking him who they felt he couldn't really connect to them, they knew I was the college rabbi. So they'd come to me and ask me. And after a number of weeks, I said, you know what? Why don't we make a class? It'll be for the industry, the Hollywood class. And so we did it. Originally, it was in my house, but eventually it moved to the house of a big Hollywood agent named Willie Mercer. And it started with four people in the industry. And then it grew and grew. And it was the first Wednesday of every month. We had writers, directors, producers. I was close with the VP of Warner Brothers, Sony, Disney. And I am till today, just two days ago, had a long talk with the director and writer of the show, Friends, Christoph Waltz who is a very very famous actor he won the best actor award two out of the past six years so we made his daughter's match his daughter's shidduch his daughter's a religious Jew and she came to us for Shabbat we made a shidduch so there's actually a cute video of me dancing with Christoph Waltz to Havana Aguila in the middle of the world just so beautiful. And it was a nice experience because these are very intelligent people. You know, you think Hollywood, you think Tinseltown. They're very intelligent people, particularly the writers were very intelligent. The director and writer of Friends is a Harvard law grad. And they're very, very intelligent people. And the message of Torah really spoke to them. It wasn't something I walked around with, with a sense of pride, but it was uh, an adventure in life is about little experiences and adventures. So that was one of them.
0: Obviously, we're talking uh, now you are in New York, as you noted, and that's on the other side of the country from L.A., for those uh, who are geographically challenged. So what happened that you migrated east? Are you just kind of on your way to Israel,
1: I love that you asked, are we on our way to Israel? Is this on the way? I actually believe in that. I have my Zionistic heart beating very strongly. And we have a little shtick, a little twist in our lives, whereby our house remains listed on the market. Even though we don't plan on selling, but it's listed because I want to teach my kids we're always one foot out the door. We're always one foot to Israel. So we're listed. You go to Zillow, we're listed. And we don't plan on moving this second. But if the opportunity comes, we're in Israel. So. asking price
0: on right now. We can get this whole audience uh, to about the
1: price for you, Rabbi. <laughs> well, uh, if you, you come on over, we'll have some coffee, we'll have a Danish <laughs> coffee seed,
0: and uh, we'll schmooze Beautiful. Me. So you ended up in New York. What brought you there? Why did you leave UCLA? By all accounts, you were thriving there and had to become, borrow the term, an industry leader and sort of trendsetter, like we said. What took you out from there into New York? So here's the story. I started in UCLA and at a certain point, I grew a little bit frustrated. Like, why
1: just one campus? So I went over to USC, which is across town, and I opened a program there. And the people who were paying my salary, I brought them down during our first blowout event. They weren't even aware that we were doing anything there. And about 120 students came to that event. It was a Jewish speed dating event. (laughs) We had a lot, a lot of young Jewish singles there. And the people I worked for got really excited. So they said, Rabbi, now we got to do two campuses. So at that point, I looked at myself a little bit like a Johnny Apple seed, Like, let's plant campuses all around. So at that point, I opened up a campus at UCSB. Actually, I spoke at the inauguration of the Hillel. And then we opened that up. And then UCSD and STSU, which are the two San Diego campuses, I helped those open up. And then Cal State Northridge. And I went from campus to campus, opening those campuses. And then we installed rabbis, and I would train them. And when people heard I was doing this, so they said, can you come down to our city? And open up a campus for us. So I did that in Madison, Wisconsin, and that program is still there today. It's called GEM. Then I went down to Florida for 10 days and I trained in the community there what they need to open a campus program. And we opened a campus program there called CLE, which also is around. And I began doing it going from city to city. So at that point, I got restless again. I said, let's do the whole America. So I I had this opportunity, and the person that I worked for is a very, very wealthy man, and he was willing to fund it and support it. But the condition was that I am close to him, and close to him means I have to be in the East Coast, which is where he lived. So it was for that reason. When I lived in LA, I never thought I was going to move back. The weather is so glorious, (laughs) and I would see on the news snowstorm, two feet of snow, and I was there like laughing in, in my apartment in Los Angeles, and it made no sense. But I did move back, and now I actually like the winter. And my job today is I'm a senior manager for this organization called Olami, which is all across the world. And my position is in North America. And I travel from campus to campus training in rabbis, speaking to the students, and making sure there's adequate funding and advocacy for those campuses. We're in right now 115 places around North America.
0: Do you miss the daily grind of the, having your own campus
1: operation? To a degree, I do, because when I go to other campuses, I like being out there amongst the students. I connect very well with them. I know where they're coming from. I like that. But I don't miss it that much because I'm not a pencil pusher. I still run my own trip. It's called the Akiva trip. And I run a minimum of five trips a year. So every year, I run many trips. And each trip has 40 students. So that's 40 times five. So I still have a very close connection with our trips to Israel... So three are to Israel and the fourth one is to Poland. And the fifth one is either to Poland or last year we did Brazil. It was called a summit. And then we stayed a week afterwards and ran a trip. This year we're doing Spain and England. And also we run a trip called Stateside, which is in New York, where I bring campuses to my house for a week and we have a a large house and they stay in the house and we create programs for them. So I'm still very much a campus rabbi. At least I'd like to picture myself like that. And every Shabbat we have a very big Shabbat.
0: You mentioned you have a large house. What do you do at that house? I, I know you host large gatherings. Tell us about that. So we have each Shabbat, you know, usually between 65
1: and 100 students and people who come. Everyone sleeps over. So it's not eating and running. Everyone sleeps. That's my rule. You got to experience the 24-hour Shabbat. A lot of them sleep in my house, but of course we do end up having to put people by neighbors. So everyone knows they're going to get a call from the class because every week or text messages. And when we run out of spaces, so we have tents in our backyard. We have a lot of tents. Uh, right now, if you go to my backyard, you'll find four tents, but there were a whole bunch of tents waiting to be set up for the Shabbat. So we do that every Shabbat. It's wonderful. We enjoy We do a lot of very unique things that other people don't do on Shabbat to make the Shabbat special and one of those things are at the end of Shabbat we do a huge musical number. We have a band which includes my children. I have a son who's a guitarist and drummer and then two daughters are a pianist. Another son who plays violin and everyone plays. And we Usually we have other musicians and we do a big Havdala which is very emotional and inspirational and we live stream it. We have a website Havdala.com and it also goes on Facebook and we have at the end of the week usually about 10,000 people have seen our Havdala each week. So it's a very inspiring time And we do that out of the house. And in addition, we have groups coming throughout the week. We have a group coming this Monday from Israel. They're staying over the night. We had a group from Australia who stayed a week. French, the French group comes a few times
0: a year. So it's very busy. That's what it sounds like. I'm getting nervous just hearing about all the activity. Do you cater? I mean, how does that work? I make sure my wife has a lot of good
1: massages. (laughs) My kids are amazing, amazing at peeling potatoes.
0: (laughs) <laughs> they got it down to an art. I know that you also, uh, from being to your house, you have a, a beautiful art collection, and that's another hobby of yours. You told me a story in the past of how you had maybe a fire that had damaged some of that, and your house today is different than what it was when you first moved to New York. Can you tell us that story? Because I think it's worth sharing. Yeah,
1: I mean, I just got the most beautiful piece I've ever seen. If you see my eyes drifting to the left, it's right there. So I keep looking like, wow, it's so beautiful. I love art. My grandfather, -grandfather, great-grandfather, they're all art collectors. And I started collecting, interestingly enough, on campus because I had a student who came over and he had a great time at the end of the meal. He said, I have a question for you. You're Orthodox. Is there something about Orthodox Jews that's against art? I said, no. Why would you think that? He says, I'm looking at your walls. You don't have any art. Most people have art. And first I thought, well, most people have money to burn. But then I thought to myself, you know, there's no problem putting up art. Art is beautiful. So I started with like simple pieces and then I really got taken with it. And, you know, I'm a a sucker for knowledge. If there's anything that's out there, I just need to know everything about it. So I taught myself a lot about art and artists and what to look for and what the biographies of each of the artists were and how art could become valuable. And I started collecting. Our house burned down. When the house burned down, a lot of my very beautiful pieces were damaged. So that sounds like a tragedy. The first thing it's good to know is we collect a lot of things, but if the family is good and the kids are safe, you realize how little all the other stuff matters or doesn't matter. I'm just putting that in because the first thing that came to my mind is not, oh my goodness, the art. First thing is thank you almighty that my kids and my family are safe. Having said that, I really lost a lot of art and I liked it, but thank God the insurance did cover it and it was good because we had to rebuild our house and the only way we were able to rebuild it with the vision that I had, because my the vision was to create a house that we could host and have a lot of people be there as a place where people people can feel comfort. The only way to do that was with a lot of funds. So the funding from the art helped. So it didn't replace the art, but it did allow us to modify the house in a way that we're able to do
0: the kind of Shabbat that we do now. It's a great segue because you talk about Shabbat and how Shabbat is a centerpiece of your personal life and your continuing outreach efforts, welcoming so many people into your home, all those peeled potatoes and backyard tents. But you have in recent years launched a seminal project, perhaps your capstone. I don't want to say it's coming to an end. God willing, there'll be many more years but certainly a project that has become a major, major part of your work and your reputation. And that is a website called Shabbat.com. Listeners may have heard of it, some may not have. Tell us what it is and perhaps more importantly, how did it come about? What was the vision that inspired its creation? What are you trying to accomplish with it?
1: Excellent, okay. So the
0: overview of Shabbat.com
1: is like a Jewish Facebook for mitzvot and kindness. It's like a Jewish connector. It's a social network, just like any social network but it is for Jewish people or people who are Jewishly curious. And it is a site that people can find place for Shabbat. People can find guests. That's how it started. And it does much more today. There's a dating aspect, there's a job aspect, there's a Jewish learning aspect. So here's the history behind it. Because we have a lot of guests, people used to say, Rabbi, send us some of your guests. You know, you have so many, send us a few. And I used to think to myself, why don't you find your own guests? Why am I giving you my guests? I love my guests. And then I realized that most people don't have access to guests, especially college students. They don't have access. How are you going to find guests? You know, go over to people in a Supermarket. And then I realized that they can't find guests. So then it must be difficult for guests to find hosts. And besides the people who they know and they're friendly with, it's tough. So we started this as a resource. We did not realize it was going to become so big, but as a resource for guests and hosts to find each other. And we called it, originally, its name was Siwan Chavez. That was its name for the first year or so. And then after a year, we were able to acquire the name Shabbat.com. And it grew from the first member signing up. So much joy when we had 10 people. It was incredible. Then 100, and then 1,000, and now we have about 100,000 and we are in 132 countries around the world and about 10,000 people a week find places to go to for Shabbat and wherever I go oh I just used it in Belgium I just used it in France I just used it in Tel Aviv and the stories are remarkable and they're wonderful how it grew and just recently Shabbat.com was named by the state of Israel as the number one Jewish project in the world it won thankfully a wonderful award for that we did not even know we were in the running. uh, There were 80 projects that had been submitted or found out about. We were contacted when there were three left, asking us for all sorts of information, which we supplied. And we are going to be advertised all over Israel come this Hanukkah time. We're going to be on buses, we're going to be on billboards, and this is going to be sponsored by the state of Israel. We added an app about two years ago. Uh, The app is doing very well. We're still growing, but the app in iTunes, we're still at five stars, 4.8 android so that's what it is so originally it was guests and hosts and there actually is a hosting site called couchsurfing that i wasn't aware of and just yesterday online i found somebody who did a college dissertation on the differences between couchsurfing and (laughs) (laughs) shabbat.com
0: randomly online
1: a 12 or 24 page you know two sides the differences in how it functions just very fascinating that's cute A few years after we started, we thought, you know, a lot of the guests are singles. Why don't we allow them to meet each other, fall in love and make nice Jewish babies? What a wonderful way of connecting. So we added a dating aspect to it and it's been wildly, wildly successful. To the point that right now we're averaging an engagement a week from the website. So every single week we have an engagement. I usually put it up on my Facebook or on Shabbat.com, the engagement of the week, but it's very powerful. My own son found his wife on the site. I will tell you a wonderful connecting story. This is just so beautiful. There was a a lady, a lawyer on the site, and she was not an observant Jewish, but she's very Jewishly proud. And she found us on the site and she asked to come for Shabbat. I said, sure, come. She says, I got some boys, my sons, can they come? I said, absolutely. So their oldest son, whose name was Trevor. So Trevor came, we enjoyed him. And after coming, we said, would you like to come on my trip to Israel? So Trevor came and he had such a good time that he stayed to study in Israel. He was inspired by Israel so much. Then his younger brother joined us and his younger brother also went to study in Israel. Trevor now came back and he found his wife who's engaged on Shabbat.com. Trevor's mother, the lawyer, just got proposed to by another Shabbat.com guy. Like, his whole family is a beautiful, beautiful connected story. So Shabbat.com, it's not a website. It's This is how I describe it. It's really us. It's us. It's a vehicle for us to connect to each other because nobody wants to connect like we do to each other. We need to connect. We love to connect. And this is just the vehicle that allows us
0: to. Do you think that the meteoric growth that it's displayed is an extension of that, that really you were just tapping into an energy that was waiting to be expressed?
1: Absolutely. And we're not even close to exploding it the way we want it to explode we believe that Jewish people, because of our shared experience, our shared tragedy, our hopes and our dreams, it doesn't make a difference what denomination you're part of or what language you speak. We love each other and we want to connect. Sometimes we're a little bit judgmental of each other or suspicious, but the truth of the matter is when we hear a Jew is in trouble, we're there for them because we care so deeply. So that finds its expression in Shabbat.com, which is a non-denominational site. As a matter of fact, it is the divided almost evenly between all the denominations. We have about 40% Orthodox and the rest, the other 60%, 30, 35% reform, conservative, unaffiliated. It's a cross-section of who we are. And on the board in the front, the status update board, you see them having conversations with each other. Maybe they wouldn't ever attend each other's synagogue or temple, but here they are together sharing pictures and Mazel Tov's and condolences and wishes of refuah shleimah, That whoever is sick gets better. So, yeah, I think that energy is there and we're still tweaking the site. Again, this is something that people take special courses about how to create a social network. And we sort of did it by the seat of our pants. We did not know what to do and how to do it, but we're always modifying and changing. And right now, we're going through a new version that is going to respond to a lot of the feedback that we've been getting just to make the site cleaner and safer and more user friendly.
0: What's next for Rabbi Benzio and Klatsko? Is this the project that you see running with for the next 10 years? Do you have other dreams and visions that you want to exercise? Where do you see yourself going and some of these projects going along with you?
1: Yeah, I do not view this as my capstone. <laughs> I'm still young and energetic. I have a lot of other dreams in how we can affect the Jewish world in a bigger way. We created an organization to put those dreams under. The name of the organization is called Odyavo. That's O-D-Y-A-V-O. And Odyavo has under it 11 different organizations. These are all organizations that we started and we head and we direct. So part of Odyavo would be, for example, helping people with depression and anxiety in our community. So that's a project called Chaskenu. We have a where we send out groups of, of young students, most of them yeshiva university students, to go to communities and create a Shabbat environment and do children's groups and read from the Torah. That's another project. There's havdalah.com as a project, Live Judaism is a project. And there's a lot more, the big shift that I'm going through right now, which is what I see to be the next big idea. But let me just qualify this. A lot of people think that all the ideas are taken, and they're not. Not only aren't they, but a lot of the ideas... That people have are not being done to their fullest. And when someone does it correctly, they'll say, Oh, I didn't realize I was missing this. We have Shabbat.com, and it turns out that Shabbat.com, that website, was actually offered to some of the big organizations, and they turned it down because they said, What are we gonna do with it? And now everyone says, Oh, what a great name! <laughs> Yeah, sort of have a vision, big vision. So my next big vision, this is an unveiling because I haven't gone public with this yet. So this is an exclusive that you've (laughs) gotten. The next big vision is to really blow out Jewish singles in terms of live encounters. There's nothing out there that will draw in average college student to a proper Jewish singles event doesn't exist to ask a student on campus. They'll go to an, an event that has Jewish singles. There was a synagogue in Los Angeles that used to do a project called Friday Night Live, which was a singles kind of event, and that attracted a 1,000 students every Friday night. A 1,000 students, they used to leave my Shabbat to go to Friday <laughs> Night Live. So we're clearly not tapping into it. And by people's obsession with online dating and J-Swipe, we know that people want to meet. And we also know that Jewish continuity is a major subject of the Pew reports, of donors, of birthright. We feel that Jewish people have- something valuable to offer the world. And if our Judaism not just gets watered down, but if it's not relevant and not important, then ultimately the Jewish message, the Jewish dream, and the Jewish leadership won't be there for humanity. So it starts with creating stability. And stability begins in the home with spouses, with husbands and wives that have a shared sense of mission. So this has not been done properly. We need to do it in a systematic, organized, and branded way so that people know that when this comes to town, you want to be part of it. We have a few different ways that we plan on doing this, but I'll give you sort of a, a vision. You know what's been really hot recently? Smoking meat. Have you heard about the smoking yes, meat? Yes, I have. It is the hottest thing. Pardon the pun. Everyone's into
0: smoking You meat. want to start the smoking meat market? Is that so?
1: <laughs> And they have people who travel to different towns and they, do smoke, they yep. do smoke meat. And they attract a lot of people. You can have a traveling concept that is so name recognized. You know, Singles Live is coming to your city the weekend of March 15th. Singles Live. Smoking
0: maybe, singles. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Sounds incredible. And then always uh, wonderful to hear that there's so much vitality and passion still in those zones. But Klatsko, anything else you'd like to add and in particular, tell people where they can learn more about you and some of your projects. Obviously, Shabbat.com is self-explanatory, but other places that people can go to learn about you, your work, your passion. They want to come for Shabbat to visit you in New York at your 100-person table and backyard tent. Tell us how we can do that online. Absolutely. You know how some people try to keep their names off of the internet and they try to hide?
1: I do the opposite because I, <laughs> they're going to get my information anyways. Let me not make them break their heads for it. So anyone who wants to contact me, 212 Shabbat. That's my phone number. You see, I give it out on the air, 212 Shabbat. Very simple. If you have rabbi kind questions, you want to join me for Shabbat, you have to go through shabbat.com. But we would be happy to have you. You want to hear more about I don't know why you would want, but you want to hear more about my philosophy in life and some of those ideas. I do a lot of relationship counseling and such. There is a website called Torah Anytime, and I have about 50 lectures there. And on YouTube, I also have some lectures over there. And if you're in New York and you would like to come by and have a coffee, I'd be honored to sit down and get to know you and help change. Even if you didn't discover
0: gravitational waves.
1: Even if you didn't discover anything. (laughs) Discover yourself, right? then, Then I can learn from you.
0: Well, what a wonderful way to end, and we've certainly learned so much from you. And we thank you for a little bit of your time. Enjoy the bat mitzvah this evening, surprise bat mitzvah. And I hope our listeners will be surprised and pleased getting to learn so much from such an interesting and inspiring person. Thank you, Rabbi Klatsko. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.